Let me read for you. Uh, our epistle reading for this evening comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The word of the Lord. Uh, please be seated. substitute preacher for Eric. Uh, it's been really a great gift to have him uh, serving alongside of me uh, doing campus ministry with graduate students and faculty at New York University. He's become sort of the, the Starsky to my Hutch or the Hansel to my Zoolander, and it's been a great, it's been a great gift. Um, so uh, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been exploring the faith that we and other Christians the world over profess each week. Uh, when we recite together the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, was not written by the Apostles themselves, 
uh, but it is an early distillation of the Apostles' teaching as it uh, is found in the New Testament and as it was handed down uh, through the ages uh, and through the tradition of the Church. Uh, and we have examples of this creed uh, in earlier iterations uh, in ancient baptismal liturgies, and you can trace its development about uh, over the four centuries when it kind of came together. Uh, it didn't really change all that much. It was more or less just becoming uh, clearer and getting uh, you know, more fleshed out, uh, but more or less, suffice it to say, uh, something like this creed uh, has been professed by Christians in every place since the very earliest days of the church. And uh, since we didn't recite it as part of the liturgy uh, tonight, I'll just share that with you now. Um, so the creed more or less goes, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, uh, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, many churches all across the world and over all of the many centuries of the church's existence have said this as part of their uh, services, their liturgy together. And the main reason for that is basically to guard against bad preaching. <laughs> the whole point of it is to make sure that regardless of whatever this guy says, uh, the church knows what they believe. It's a reminder, and it's a guard against uh, people coming in here and screwing up, which thankfully for me is you know, it's a little pressure off, right? Because you guys know what the church believes, uh, regardless of whether or not I, I miss some points or get some things backwards. Um, this week, Eric has asked me to look at the third article of the creed wherein we profess, I believe in the one holy Catholic Church. So let me pray, and we'll dive in. Uh, so most merciful God, we pray that you be with us now. Come, Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I believe in the one holy Catholic Church. Uh, let me start by making two quick clarifying points. Uh, first point, uh, when we recite the creed and say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the word Catholic just means universal. So we aren't just talking about the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but rather the whole universal church, uh, which includes the Roman Catholic Church, but also includes Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans and Pentecostals and Presbyterians and all the rest. So bear that in mind whenever you hear me say Catholic. Don't think just the Roman Catholic Church, but think everybody uh, within the body of Christ globally. Second point, uh, Rufinus of Aquileia, uh, a fourth century commentator on the Apostles' Creed, explained that when we say the Creed, we do not say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church in the bare sense uh, that, 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 that affirms that some community going by that name exists, which is obvious and trivially true. So we're not just saying that we believe in the church in the way that we believe in UFOs or the Yeti or quantum gravity or Justin Bieber. Um, maybe some of you don't, but I'm a believer. Uh, but rather, the creed says uh, we believe in the sense 
that uh, we believe the Holy Catholic Church. We trust in the Holy Catholic Church as the mother of our faith. We trust the church not as God exactly, says Rufinus, but as the community that has, in fact, been gathered by God as part of his grand plan to save the world. Now, for many of us, that's actually pretty hard to believe. That's kind of a jagged pill to swallow. Some of you may be thinking that maybe that was a fine thing to believe for Rufinus back in the 4th century. But a lot of water has gone under the bridge, and trusting in the church today uh, seems impossible or irresponsible or even just absurd. Can we really believe in and trust in the so-called Holy Catholic Church today? Many of us prefer to think of ourselves as spiritual but not religious precisely because we do not trust institutions like the church any further than we can throw them. Many of us have been deeply wounded by religious communities, and while we might have trusted them once, that trust has been broken. From where I sit, this article of the Christian faith faces three main challenges today, and see if these uh, ring true with some of you. First, the church is so corrupt. How on earth could it be holy? Second, the church is superfluous and irrelevant. Why should I even bother? Third, the church is parochial and small-minded. Why call it universal or Catholic? This evening, I'd like to uh, look at each of these very real challenges uh, in order to try to clarify what it might mean to trust in the Holy Catholic Church today. Okay? So we'll just dive right in. First challenge. Holy? Seriously? The church is corrupt. Come on. Uh, it's a big challenge, and examples abound. I don't really have to fish uh, too hard to find some. You might think of the scandal of child sexual abuse uh, and the vast conspiracy to cover it up in the Roman Catholic Church that we've learned of in the past, uh, the last few decades. Or we might point further back to the Crusades of the medieval period or to the 17th century's so-called wars of religion. Or, more recently, we could look at slimy televangelists who talk naive people out of millions of dollars and then who are nowhere to be found when people need relief after a hurricane. When we review the church's long rap sheet, the word holy is not necessarily the first that comes to mind. So what can I say? I think the first thing to be said about this challenge is that it is not new. It is not a new challenge. In fact, we see the writers of the New Testament wrestling with the church's sinfulness from the church's very inception. And nowhere in the New Testament do we see these challenges more clearly than in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which we just read a little bit ago. Now, just as an aside, if you've never read the New Testament before, it may come as a surprise to you to find out that the New Testament is not an abstract, systematic treatise of, of, of theology or doctrine, but it is instead an anthology comprised mostly of memoirs and letters and sermons, more or less. In point of fact, if you read the New Testament straight through, most of what you're going to be doing is reading other people's mail. Um, and as it happens, uh, airing other people's dirty laundry. 
most of Paul's letters to the New Test in the New Testament are written precisely in order to address problems, big problems, in the new churches that had gathered in cities and villages and public places and private homes all across the Roman Empire. Paul's letters to the Corinthians are some of the most extreme examples. The Corinthians, their church, was divided and partisan. It was promiscuous. Uh, many of the Corinthians were fooling around with prostitutes. It was scandalous. One guy in the Corinthian church was shacking up with his stepmom. Uh, they were cheap. The Corinthians had promised to send famine relief uh, to Jerusalem, uh, but they had yet to pay up, and Paul's having to pester them to actually uh, put their money where their mouth is. Uh, they were profligate and selfish. People were getting drunk off of communion wine. I mean, I haven't been to a church service like that. Might be interesting. There was big trouble in Little Corinth, more or less. Uh, and so, just bear that in mind. Whenever anybody says to you uh, that we just need to get back to doing things the way that they did them in the time of the New Testament, uh, you can be pretty sure that that person hasn't been reading their Bible very closely. <laughs> the early church had all kinds of problems. There has never been a time when the church, uh, when the church completely had its act together. There is no golden age for us to return to. Not the first century, not the medieval period, not the Reformation, and certainly not the 1950s. What's worse, the church often has huge blind spots, huge blind spots, and is oblivious to the ways in which we aren't practicing what we preach. The Corinthians, for instance, had all of this crazy stuff going on that I just talked about, and yet they were self-righteous. They thought that they were all that. Some of them were even calling themselves pneumaticoi, sort of like this boastful way of saying, I am super hyper-spiritual. Paul's point in writing this letter uh, is to try to wake them up to the mismatch between their walk, their talk, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says to them, as I just read, and he said this with not a little sarcasm, he says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul basically says to the Corinthians that they're acting like babies. They're acting immaturely, inappropriately, stupidly, selfishly. Which brings us back to our first challenge. This is the holy Catholic Church I'm supposed to trust in? Seriously? Well, in our word, yes. <laughs> I'm not making this easier for myself, I'm sorry. Uh, it's true that the church has always more or less, at various times and places, been a ragtag, problematic, promiscuous, and profligate people. And yet, and yet, even at their worst, Paul calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them saints, holy ones. He calls them sanctified, people who have been made holy. Listen to how Paul addresses the Corinthians with all of their problems at the beginning of the letter. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be the church. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call upon the Lord 
Jesus Christ. The New Testament, all the way through, is crystal clear that the church is holy, not because of anything that the church has done. Rather, the church is holy because of what God has done and is doing for us in Christ and by His Spirit. Jesus Christ alone lived the sort of holy life that God calls all of us to live. And the good news is that He did it on our behalf. He is our representative, our standing. And because we are in Him, whatever God sees in Him, God has attributed to us. And that includes holiness. Paul says this uh, later on in the letter. He says, Because of God, you, the church, are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. At the end of the day, the church can only boast about what Christ our Lord has done for us and be grateful for the things that His Spirit is doing through us now. To the extent that the church is holy, we are holy only because Christ's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf has made us so. To say that the church is holy is not to say that the church has it all together or that the church is always exemplary as a moral community. Far from it. It is rather to say that these broken and sinful people whom God has set apart for himself to heal and to help. This is, this is God's people. God has sanctified and is sanctifying us despite ourselves. So the church is holy, but it should never be holier than thou. As Martin Luther put it, the church is simultaneous et peccator, simultaneously both righteous by God's grace alone and sinners because that's what we do best. Um, okay, so, fair enough, some of you may be saying. Maybe you can buy all of this. Maybe you believe in Jesus, or at least you're interested in him. Uh, maybe you'd even consider yourself a Christian, but you still don't want anything to do with the church. Uh, you don't see what the church could possibly have to do with your relationship with God. So that brings us to our second challenge. Church, seriously, uh, the church is superfluous and irrelevant. Let's see if this echoes the sentiments of some of us. Um, I don't really need another thing to do or another place to be, okay? I'm pretty busy. I read my Bible, I pray, I meditate, I even have a few Christian friends, and we go to brunch sometimes. Uh, I don't really need all these other people, especially, you know, uh, those, those people, uh, you know, the weird ones. Um, the close talkers, the trekkies, the fratty finance bros, Mr. New York sports who can't seem to hold a conversation about anything if it's not the Jets or the Knicks or the Yankees. And that old lady who's really sweet, but who honestly I'm not going to invite over for a cocktail party. Uh, I don't need all that. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I don't need to spend my precious time hanging out with all these random people. I spend enough time with randos on the subway. Uh, I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. You may not have experienced that recently because you know, your church meets in the evening, but if you met in the morning, you would think that a lot. Um, so, okay, I get it. Uh, but here's the thing, here's the thing. We don't get to define Christianity for ourselves, nor do we get to choose the terms of our own salvation. And it turns out that there is no such thing as an individual Christian. 
You literally cannot be a Christian by yourself. To be united with Christ as your Lord and Savior and representative is also to be united with each and every other Christian as members of his body. Uh, and as such, members of one another. There's no getting away from those people. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians just a few chapters later. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Application, none of you can say to anyone else, I have no need of you. We need each other. Turns out, salvation is a team sport, and we don't get to pick the team. Uh, you see, salvation consists not only in each of us being reconciled to God, but also in each of us being reconciled with one another. God's purpose in sending Christ to embody and announce his kingdom, to bear our sins on the cross, and to conquer sin and death uh, through his resurrection was not just to save our eternal, immaterial souls, but rather to renew the whole world, starting with the fragmented and fractured human community. He came to heal not only our alienation from God, but our alienation from one another as well. The purpose of Christ's cross is to tear down the walls that divide us, whether they are walls of race or class or political persuasion or Myers-Briggs type. Um, as Paul says in his letter to the, to the Galatians, another church with all kinds of problems, he says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Greek word ekklesia, uh, which is typically translated into English as church, means something like convocation. That's my favorite, you know, synonym, convocation, a calling together. In the church, we see God calling together uh, a people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation and class and profession and political persuasion. And this conversation is intrinsic, convocation is intrinsic to our very salvation. It's not just an optional add-on. If salvation is finally becoming whole, you cannot become whole until you become a part. If salvation is loving and being loved by God, you can't love God without loving the bearers of his image. The church is the school of love. The church is where we learn to answer Christ's call to love God, our enemies, our neighbors, and our Christian brothers and sisters. 
And I would suggest that if you won't put forth the effort to learn to love your Christian brothers and sisters, you'll never really learn to love your neighbors, much less your enemies, and certainly not God. Uh, listen to what the Apostle John says in uh, another letter to yet another troublesome church. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you can't love Christians who are different from you, you don't really stand a chance of loving your enemies. Dorothy Day, the great uh, Catholic uh, uh, social justice worker um, and, and, uh, and yeah, uh, labor, labor activist, uh, said, I really only love God as much as the person I love least. That's pretty challenging. To love God means learning to love the people that God loves the way that God loves them. And that starts in a renewed community that God has called to himself, the church. Which brings us to our third and final challenge. But the church, it's so parochial, it's so narrow-minded. You may be thinking that I've overplayed my hand. Uh, you might have been willing to entertain the idea uh, that the church is a community sanctified on the basis of Christ's work alone. Maybe you like that stuff. Uh, you might even have been willing to grant that participation in a local church uh, would be good and a healthy thing. It would probably increase your dating pool. Um, but all my talk about the church being integral to God's plan to save the world seems really, really far-fetched to you. Understood. You might be thinking, the church is so narrow, it's so small-minded. The church is such a, a marginal community. Isn't Christianity just a white, Western, American, European religion? You can think of dozens of other communities uh, right here in the city. Communities, organizations, companies, and nonprofits that are much more likely candidates uh, for saving the world, like Apple, or UNICEF, or the Clinton Global Initiative, or Greenpeace, or the ASPCA. Isn't the church just inherently narrow, given that it caters to one religious community out of all the religious communities in the world. I don't know if I'm striking it up with anybody. Uh, what to say? Um, first thing I, I think I'd like to say is that um, is that it feels to me a little bit like the pot calling the kettle black sometimes when I hear this sort of an objection. Um, there's a great uh, sketch on Saturday Night Live really right after the election. Um, basically, the sketch opens up as an infomercial for an independent city-state in which uh, liberals here in New York could go and live a life as though the election had never happened. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the infomercial goes like this. Coming in 2017, The Bubble. The Bubble is a planned community of like-minded free thinkers, and no one else. So if you're an open-minded person, come here to close yourself in. In here, it's like the election never happened. Among the amenities here in the bubble, you'll find plenty of hybrid cars, used bookstores, and small farms with the rawest milk you have ever tasted. You've even streamlined our high-speed internet with only good sites like HuffPo, Daily Coffs, Netflix documentaries about sushi rice, and explosive comedy like McSweeney's. Planning is underway to give you everything you need, except, of course, police or firemen, because we haven't found any who would agree to live here. Uh, One-bedroom apartments in the bubble start at a low, low price of $1.9 million. The bubble. It's Brooklyn, with a bubble on it. 
I say this, I live in Brooklyn, okay? <laughs> uh, I mean, let's be honest, modern American coastal, coastal cosmopolitanism can be pretty parochial in its own right, uh, even if it's in denial about its own parochialism. Um, so that's the first thing I'd like to say. Second thing to say is that uh, when we recite the creed, and we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, as I said before, the word Catholic just means universal. And that's actually, I think, a pretty good description of the church. In point of fact, the church has never been a fundamentally white Western religion. It may surprise you to know that the church has existed in the Middle East and in India and North Africa since its very inception. Even in the Middle Ages, which you might think of as being like the quintessentially white Christian time, uh, more than half of the world's Christians were in Asia and uh, the Middle East. There are, in fact, today more Anglicans in Africa than there are in England and the United States combined. Uh, and the largest Presbyterian and Methodist churches in the world are in Seoul, Korea. Well, I know that the news media, too, also talks about you know, white American evangelicals as a sort of monolithic voting block. Uh, the fact of the matter is that even here in the U.S., one out of three evangelicals is a person of color. I can go on and on. Uh, there simply is no other community, in point of fact, uh, that has lived and worked and served in more times and communities and cultures and places and contexts. If you really want to be in a cosmopolitan community that transcends time and space and to be in solidarity with people uh, of different cultures from all around the world, you really can't do better than throwing yourself into the life of the church. And the Church of Jesus Christ is a consequential community. The late great Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once wrote this. He said, regardless of what anyone may think uh, personally or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of the history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? The answer is probably not much. Just to name a few examples. Do you like the idea of inalienable human rights? Well, that idea was introduced to the world by the church as ancient Christians tried to make sense of their conviction that all men were created in the image of God. Do you like hospitals? That's great. Hospitals were invented in the fourth century by St. Basil the Great in order to systematically care for uh, lepers and other uh, indigent peoples. Do you like education? The church has always supported the teaching of mathematics and science and grammar and logic, but they really upped the ante in the 12th century uh, when they invented the university and founded Oxford and Paris and Cambridge and Bologna on the universities there. And again, I can go on and on, but suffice it to say uh, that as a matter of history, a matter of history, most of the institutions that make up the backbone of contemporary civilization were born out of the labors of the church. Why? Because the gospel is a gospel of global reconciliation. It's a gospel aimed at, at healing the world. The church has always been a community for others. It's always been a community turned outward for blessing and healing the world. The church is a community for God and for others, a community called and blessed by God in order to call and bless others and to bless and call each other. This is the way that God is going to save the world. Through potlucks and small groups and praying together and baptisms and communion services, 
all the myriad ways in which you are being knit together into a community and become Jesus' hands and feet for this neighborhood, this city, this world. But, and this is my application for you, that only happens if you come together. It's easy to skip. It's easy to blow it off. It's easy to opt out. But don't. Here is where you will learn to love and where you'll learn to live. And you'll learn to be loved by God. As my friends in AA like to say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Let me pray for us. Most merciful God, we, uh, we thank you that you have called us together to new life in Christ. Lord, that you have blessed us and sanctified us. Lord, that you have redeemed us by your blood. Lord, we do pray that you would be at work in us by your spirit to make us to, the, to be the hands and feet of your body as we go out into the world. Lord, help us to represent you to the world as you represent us before God. We pray all these things in your